Hey folks, I know that most climbers go into the mountains to get away from the scary realities of modern life. And complicated real-world things like run-ins with the law can frighten and confuse you and cause you to leap from your sprinter and run into the night while being chased by a Utah statey named Rulon and his bloodthirsty, drug-sniffing German shepherd. But don't despair. Just like you got over your fear of the internet tubes and managed to download this podcast, there's a cure for your fear of the legal system. Dan Markoff is a climber, a normal cast listener, partner at Atkins and Markoff, and he has set up an email hotline to field any of your questions about the law. Dan knows you'd rather be avoiding reality in the mountains rather than facing it in the courtroom. So why don't you let him help you out? Email climbinglawyer at gmail.com with any questions you might have. Once again, that's climbinglawyer at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for your time. Let's get to it. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... The Norma Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. This episode is also brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, Maxim Ropes, and as usual, our friends at Defiant Bean Roasters. Go to defiantbean.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee. All right, let's see if I can get this thing started again. Hello and welcome to episode. <clears throat> yeah, excuse me. Hello and El. Hello and welcome. No, I don't think so. Hello and welcome to episode forty-one. This is your host Chris Calouse. It is September twentieth, about four thirty p.m. Mountain Standard Time. On today's show, legendary climber and personal hero of mine, Mr. Paul Piana. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about climbing festivals. Now, I used to avoid climbing festivals. A lot of people do. You know, we still have that thing about getting into the woods or into the mountains or into the hills all by ourselves, which there's something to be said for that some of the time, maybe even most of the time. But what I've learned in the last few years is that climbing festivals can be a lot of fun. You know why? Because I like climbers. I think climbers are fun people. I think they're cool people. And I generally like hanging out with them more than I like hanging out with the general public. Now, of course, if you go to a climbing area that's having a festival, you're going to find crowded routes. But the truth is, is you don't really go to the climbing festival to climb. I know that sounds maybe counterintuitive. But really, you're going to the climbing festival to have fun and hang out with other climbers, to dance, often to drink, and many of the things that come with drink. Maybe listen to music. Maybe lose your mind. Maybe play some games. Maybe buy some cheap shit. I don't know. Get a t-shirt. Anyway, if you've never been to a climbing festival, you should check one out. But go with an open mind. And again, realize that, yeah, those really classic routes are going to have a line on them. But you know what? When you're standing in line, waiting to climb that route, strike up a conversation. You might find out 
that the person you're talking to knows your best friend, went to college with their aunt, actually belayed you on a route, and you've totally forgotten about it because it was 10 years ago and you were so self-centered that you don't even remember people's names from back then. Or I might be standing there, and you can say, hey, bro, thanks for the cool podcast. And I can go, hey, bro, no problem. Then we can high-five, or maybe we can hug, or just look at each other uncomfortably, which is what usually happens when people come up and tell me they like the show. Anyway, we're a tribe. We're a climbing tribe. And more and more, I'm in favor of things that support the tribe. And climbing festivals are a way for us to get together and be tribal with all that entails. And you know what? The following weekend, go into the mountains on your solo vision quest. But the truth is, is you can't do that every single weekend. Nobody can have that many vision quests. Your brain will melt right out of your ears. Too many vision quests. Not a good thing. With that in mind, I'd like to give a shout out to two festivals that are coming up in September. The first one that's coming up on the 21st through the 22nd, put on by a group of Flagstaff climbers who call themselves the Narbarians, which frankly is a big enough selling point right there. That's down in Flagstaff, centered around Paradise Forks climbing area. Um, it's the second annual one. You can find information on their, I think, slightly awkwardly named Facebook page, Second Annual Forks Fest on Facebook, or go to the Narbarians Facebook page, and you'll find it there. G-N-A-R, blah, 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 Barians. That looks like a lot of fun. They've got a guy climbing in a tutu on the poster, so there you go. The second one coming up the following weekend, uh, the 26th to the 29th, is in City of Rocks, the Idaho Mountain Festival. I think this one is also relatively new, maybe the second one. Uh, for information about that one, a little bit further north, you can go to IdahoMountainFest.com with all the information. So yeah, two festivals, two tribal events coming up in September. Go ahead and check them out. Okay, on to the interview with Paul. Paul Piana is a bona fide hero of mine. He was making a name for himself right when I started climbing. He had just recently with his intrepid partner, Todd Skinner, a man who's no longer with us, as most of you probably know. He had just recently climbed the South A Wall Free when I had started climbing and I really didn't know anything about what that even meant, but I would find out eventually. So this guy was right in my community. I was in Fort Collins. He was living in Boulder. Um, I was aware of him. I could actually go buy things from him at Neptune Mountaineering. And he was sort of one of those guys that made me realize that the greats in climbing are right there among us and that we could sort of rub shoulders with them, which since then, I've come to realize is one of the great things about our sports, and actually is one of the reasons I started this podcast, because I figured they would uh, be open to talking to me, even though I'm not anybody special. So anyhow, this is one for the fans. This is a pretty good long conversation. I edited very little. Uh, the sound's a little funky. We were up in the Coulter Loft at the Lander Bar at, guess what, the Lander International Climbing Festival. So kick back and enjoy this one and glean what wisdom you can from a guy who at least when it comes to rock climbing has pretty much seen and done it all mr paul piana 
happen anyway. Okay, cool. Let's um, we actually are recording at this time, so sometimes I just leave it in. But anyway, I'm sitting in again up here in the Culture Loft in the Lander Bar here in uh, Lander, Wyoming, with Paul Piana. Thanks for coming and sitting down, Paul. My pleasure. And uh, I, I kind of sometimes I like to start these things with talking about uh, me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my show after all, but it, more of my association with you. Mm-hmm. Um, we've met before. I don't have a real, you know, friend relationship with you or acquaintances. But for me, you actually have been on my radar a lot longer because when I was coming up, I learned to climb in Fort Collins um, and kind of started about '89, and that was sort of an era when you know your name was all over the place. You were. In that era, we're in Boulder. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. And uh, working at Neptune Mountaineering. Yeah, it's yep. great. Yep. And so, you you know, I didn't have the sense of what climbing was all about yet. I didn't realize that what I've come to realize now is that one of the cool things about the sport is that these great climbers whose names you hear on all these ascents, they're, they're right there in your community. You know, you're just, you're just a cashier jockey at Neptune Mountaineering and still this amazing climber to me of like, wow, that guy's like killing it. Mm-hmm. And that was just a really cool introduction to me to be able to go down there and like kind of, I mean, this is sort of going to maybe sound weird, but you know, like I'd be in the store and I'm like, that's him just right over there, like selling shoes to somebody. That's why I used to like yeah. to go to Boulder because you could meet, you know, Bob Culp and Gary and, mm-hmm. you know, who knows, yeah. running into Dave Rick walking up Sanitas, you know, it's just, wow, that is really neat yeah totally and so you know and then I I became an accomplished climber and and quite late in my career or quite a bit later I um, planned an expedition up to Mount Proboscis Uh, I think it was about maybe three or four years after you guys had been up there you and Todd and uh, Galen Rao was on that as the photographer and you know I wrote you a letter and because I was pre-internet and asking for some information and even at that point as a as a pretty good climber you know I was still kind of like wow I'm going to send this guy a letter and then you wrote me back handwritten letter talked about the, your expedition and gave me a bunch of pointers on on you know who to go through and all that sort of thing and I don't know if you recall that I but do. Yeah. but it was it was I mean you know this is sort of like fanboy stuff but I was just like wow this guy like took time out of his day to to write me a handwritten letter and, and help us along quite a bit. And we ended up going up there and putting up a climb um, over right at you guys' climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, an aid climb that this last year actually mostly got freed. Oh, cool. So, wow. um, yeah, so it was, it was just really cool. And, and because of that, you, you last year uh, introduced Royal Robbins here at the show and talked about his inspiration for you. You know, and the thing I just kept thinking is that you've become that person for a lot of people as well. And I think that's a really... Wow, um, that's a nice comment. You know, I mean, I, it's certainly true, you know, huh. in, in my book. So anyway, so thanks for sitting down. Oh, you feel good yeah. about yourself now? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Sure, we're done. Go. That's it. Yeah, okay. Super. <laughs> we're, we're in the Lander Bar. Yeah. Let's have a beer. <laughs> let's have a beer. Right on. <laughs> anyway, let's get to you then. That was enough about me. So you're really associated with Wyoming climbing, and you grew up in Wyoming. Is that yes. right? Yep. No- Newcastle, the northeast corner. Okay. It's the home of Joey's Rodeo Arena uh, and the amazing hand, Doug Oilwell. So that's about all it's known for anymore. Okay. And the hand dug oil well is a derelict. It's closed. So. Okay. And so is the arena. <laughs> There's nothing there now. <laughs> you live there now. When I was in high school, yeah. <laughs> well, I worked in a, as a disc jockey uh-huh. playing the rock and roll songs in the little radio station. Okay. And at, in the night, part of my duty was to drive this little Volkswagen Beetle with 
uh, forward and rear facing megaphone speakers, and I announced the rodeo that mm -hmm. night. You know, yell it, you know, hey there, Delaware. Did you, people walking down the street or sitting in their car, do you know? Right. We have calf tying, you know, on and on and on. So it was a different town then. Mm -hmm. Stuff going on there. There were things happening. Yeah, and it was, it was a good place to grow up. Uh -huh. but, um, poor town. A lot of these little towns, the highways went around. It's sure. Tough on them. You know? Sure. But great. But you ha you've returned. Yes, you that's now. a long story. Um, I, you know, I grew up there, and I always loved the Black Hills. I always figured that someday I would move back to the Black Hills, okay. just because I find it a magical region. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think I'd ever move back to Newcastle. Not because I didn't like Newcastle or anything, it's just that I thought I'd be a little more in the main hills. And I decided that, gee, Todd and I aren't going anywhere this year. Not going abroad. We, when both of our parents were getting older, mm -hmm. not healthy, and we decided that we gave up a really neat China trip to climb locally, locally being Yosemite and places like that. And that's one of the reasons I moved back to Newcastle. Also, I went to the first high school reunion that I'd ever been to mm -hmm. and ran into my first girlfriend that I wanted to see. That's the reason I went there. Mm -hmm. Not for uh, romantic reasons, but just because I thought, wow, I'd just like to see her again and assumed she would be there. And she was. Long story short, we're married now. We live in <laughs> Newcastle. That's, that's a big reason why I moved back. Now. Oh, wow. So that's pretty cool. So if you're not interested in that kind of relationship, don't go to your high school reunions. Because I've talked to a lot of people that that's happened. That's happened. It's really funny. Yeah, and it's it's great. It's worked out perfectly. So. And how? What's your commute to the Black Hills? To the Harney Peak Granite and Custer mm -hmm. is thirty-seven miles to Custer and five to seven to the Rocks. Oh. so it's casual. It's right there, and it's a pleasant drive. Uh -huh. uh, you mentioned the other night that you've been uh, out there exploring some new stuff. Oh yeah. 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 Like Colorado and probably other western states, there's the pine beetle blight. Mm -hmm. It's decimating forests. And from the trees that have just died and fallen down and or preventative logging or trying to use the logs that have died, the landscape has just changed dramatically. And the, the cool thing is, after you get over the shock, is that you can see pinnacles that I don't think anybody's ever seen before because of the thick forests. And they're not these giant ranges of cathedral spires, they're just a little cluster here and there, mm -hmm. or a rogue spire. Right. standing in the trees that aren't there now. And just last week, I I went and shimmied up a chimney between two of these spires to get to the top of them, that I, they're 0.43 miles, my roundabout way from the car to the spire. Okay. So they weren't far away. It's just that they weren't tall enough to stick out of the 60 and 70 foot trees. Uh -huh. And you know, they're not, there's some cool things though, they're long that I haven't gotten to yet. But most of them are the smaller spires, but still you're exploring. You can right. get to a point where no human has ever been. And that's part of the fun. And you get to climb. Mm -hmm. Like Jan Kahn says, whenever your hands and feet come into the play on steep terrain, you're a child again. There's an element of play that's wondrous in climbing. And what I like too is to get to the childlike description of climbing. On the way, 
you know, there are these tumbled rocks, and you, if you want to, you can, you know, like a little kid, you go in this hole and come out over here and climb up on top and go around, and I still find that pretty magically fun. And so I'll just disappear into the woods, and sometimes I don't find anything new, mm -hmm. uh, but more and more I've been finding these really pretty pinnacles up to about 50 feet high, mm -hmm. and that's a secret. Don't tell anybody. Right, yeah, yeah. The inner, no one will hear this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, no one listens to I'm this. Really, so possessive about these in a way <laughs> okay because um, i love doing first ascents and back in the early 70s i'd come like when i was in the marine corps i'd come home on leave and i had this agenda that i wanted to do mm -hmm. and i'd talk to some of my best friends that lived there or in that region i say hey let's go climb this cool route on such and so and they say what route is that you know so i'll describe it and i talk about this beautiful crystal swath or a crack that goes up something and they say I'll be on the phone calling them, you know. So then I'll get over there on Saturday, and they'll say, oh, gee, we're tired. We've been climbing for the last four or five days. We need to take a rest. Oh, well, if you don't want to do that, let's go over here, and there's something that won't be very hard, but it'll be really a neat climb. Mm -hmm. ah, they didn't want to do that either. Well, they were sandbagging me the whole time, and I was adult and fell for it. And so I'd leave, and they'd, when I'd come back, they'd have done all these things, you know. <laughs> so... I had this big list of climbs I wanted to do and essentially fed them these really, right. some of the most classic routes from that era, you know. And so I've kind of become more selfish about those because mm -hmm. there aren't very many unclimbed pinnacles left, you know. Right. So it's like, well, I want to make sure they're there and if they're cool, and, you know, you always want a couple decoys to give people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a cool, and they're neat, you right. know, cool things, but... Um, like there's a little cluster of three pinnacles I just can't wait to get back. And I walked by them and I couldn't believe them. I walked up, touched them, and they're real. And <laughs> I just can't wait to go back and climb those, get, you know, get a friend to go do them. Well, let's, let's go back then to, um, I mean, you keep talking about this exploring thing and this new routing thing, and that, I think, defines your career since, since the beginning. And you just said you were in, you were in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. And so you had learned how to climb before that. Oh yeah. Yeah. What? What? Yeah. How, just real quick. How did you start to climb living in uh, in Newcastle, Wyoming? Well, obviously there was a climber in Newcastle, but I didn't know of him in those days. And that seems impossible. I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll tell you about him in a second. Okay. But I. Uh, I always loved exploration and stories. I'd loved, I still love to read a lot. And I would read stories about uh, Shackleton or um, the sailors mm -hmm. that sailed to discover sure. the New World and the Vikings who did before. And, you know, and then I loved other kinds of exploration stories like Thomas Edison inventing, which is exploring, mm -hmm. and composers that fought against the tide of that's not the kind of music we want. You know? Right. So I love people that push the boundaries in a lot of ways. I love reading about them. And I would sit on my grandmother's lap and hear stories about the old country when she came to America. And I thought, that's the greatest exploration that's happened in America in the last hundred years. Well, more than that now, a little bit. But when they came, they left their families, their country, their language, their everything, their food. And they came to this new world, and all it held was hope and a new, better life. So they came over here, and I just thought that was incredibly bold, even if they had to do it. You know, if, 
if you had to escape a dead-end existence, it still took a lot of guts to somehow get on that boat and mm -hmm. sail across the ocean. So I loved that. And my dad's brother, my uncle, was a marine fighter pilot in World War II and flew Corsairs in the Pacific and was lost in Korea. He was shot down and lost flying another fighter plane. And uh, that's what I wanted to be. Still do. I want to be a World War II fighter pilot. <laughs> I'd love to be that. <laughs> yep. Just those incredible airplanes. And, right. Um, and I'd probably be too chicken to do what they did. But still, uh -huh. I'd just dream of that. And so that's another kind of adventure, not really exploration. Sure. So much. But I admired all of that. And, and so my dad, for one reason or another, had to go to Denver, maybe business or something. And the family went with him. And I'd recently read a Life magazine article about rock climbing in Boulder. And they'd climbed this thing called the Third Flatiron. And it just sounded terrific to me. And they illustrated it with a photograph of the Lost Arrow Spire in Yosemite. I said, wow, that's in Boulder. Can you please, I just begged him, please take me. I want to see this Lost Arrow Spire in Boulder. <laughs> the first time, the first incident that when you were sandbagged. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Before we you were even a climber, they managed to sandbag you. And I looked at the flat irons, which are magnificent, but they're a little less steep than the Lost Arrow Spire sure. in Yosemite. And we went to uh, a mountaineering store. And I think it was like a Jerry Mountain Sports. And we went in there, and you know how mountaineering stores, they sell their shop-worn stuff or stuff that isn't selling. And they had a book, pile of books that nobody was buying. It was called Rock Climbers in Action in Snowdonia, which is the first English-language pictorial of rock climbing. And these pictures in whales of people climbing. Stunning black-and-white photography and a compelling narrative that went with it. But, of course, the pictures. And when I first picked that book up, I just picked it off the table and opened it up. And there, double-page spread was this beautiful, geometrically perfect corner, the Cenotaph Corner, Joe Brown's most famous route. Sure. And here was Rusty Bailey in a little flat cap and knickers bridged across this gap. Little Spider-Man. I said, wow, that's what I want to do. That picture changed my life. And so I went home, and uh, a friend of mine had taken a, some kind of outdoor course in Colorado. And he came back with, he was an older kid, and he came back with a couple carabiners and a climbing rope. And we started going out and rappelling. And he'd be afraid to rappel, so I'd rappel in to where we were going, and then he had to rappel in. And then we had to climb back out, and he's the older kid, but he couldn't climb back out because it was too scary, and I tied in and could climb back out. So being the little kid, that was great for my ego. I thought, wow, this is great. I did something. This Actually, there were a couple older kids there. I could do that, and they were chicken to do it, so I thought that was cool. I realized that, wow, this is a cool way to have a great adventure, have it be exciting, and be exploring. And about that time, somebody told me about the, uh, the climber in Newcastle. They, they, it was Ren Fenton. And if he had lived in Boulder or around where he could go to Takeets Rock or Yosemite, he'd be quite famous. He was a very, very gifted climber, but very eccentric, too. And uh, I went down to his apartment and pestered him, pestered him, pestered him to take me climbing. And finally he did, and he taught me how to tie in with knots climbers use, and uh, 
taught me how to place pitons. And we'd be go over, and there were, the, of course, in the needles, there were these pinnacles I just dreamed of getting to the top of. And I'd only gotten to the top of one cool pinnacle that was 5'3", really scary and hard. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I go climbing with Ren, and here he's climbing, taking me on these 5'8s and things, mm -hmm. which, of course, is a world of difference. And I remember there's this one spire I so badly wanted to get to the top of. And I got about two-thirds of the way up, and he wouldn't give me any more slack. He says, now you've got to climb down. I said, why? I want to get to the top. Because he knew if I got to the top, I'd repel off. Right. And he said, no, it, it's good that you learn to climb down, especially in the needles, because sometimes there's not much pro, and you had to know how to get out of the situation you've gotten yourself into. Oh, my God, it broke my heart, you know, to not get to the top of this pinnacle that I so badly wanted to get to the top of. But it was a good lesson. He'd do that to me all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, now you have to climb down. Darn. You know, and I would climb down. Then I'd come back later with my friends. Once I knew I could do it, we'd climb it. But getting climbing partners in junior high was rough, you know. <laughs> But it was cool. He taught me a lot. He <laughs> saved my life a bunch of times, actually. He right. didn't even know it. Right. It was years later. Right. Um, fabulous climber. But sadly, he had an alcohol problem, and that eventually killed him. Mm -hmm. But um, he, yeah, without Ren, I wouldn't have probably progressed mm -hmm. much farther than, you know, that I maybe would have found something else. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got started in climbing. And then... I got interested in climbing yeah. Devil's Tower, and then I heard about Vidabu, and then I heard about, you know, other places in the state. But I've often thought that if I'd lived in Boulder, I would have progressed through existing grades more quickly, but I would have learned, I always felt that in that era I would have learned the rules, and one of the rules you often run into, unless you run into this great mentor, is that that's too hard for you. Right. And nobody ever told me that. So that was a gift. And I could try things and just fight to get up them. You know, whether it was free or not, I could make my own mistakes. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a real gift that helped me. You know, the freedom to fail, uh, the freedom to pound in a piton and grab it, mm -hmm. you know, and then realize, you know, like, I wonder if we can do that without having to rest there, you know, stuff like that. Right. So kind of a natural progression for us. And, and I read whatever I could. There weren't climbing magazines then. Sure. Although another trip to Denver, I bought the 1967 Ascent. And it was $3.50, as I recall. And I thought, golly, that's an expensive magazine subscription. And I kept waiting for the other ones to come. And they right. never came. I didn't know it was an annual. For $3.50 for one magazine? So I bought the next year and the next year. And those stories were so exciting to me, you know, about Rell Robbins and his climbs and the Roper and all those Pratt, you know, mm -hmm. view from Dead Horse Point. Oh, how cool was that, you know? But, uh, yeah, anything I could absorb that had anything to do with now rock climbing. Right. So and, this was the late 60s. Yeah. And Ren told me, he was the one that veered me away from pounding the pitons in and grabbing them. He says, because you haven't climbed it, if you have to rest or hang on them. All right. Now, of course, later on, I evolved into hanging on them and grabbing them and then trying to eliminate them <laughs> eventually. Right. Right. You know, so... 
when I think about sort of uh, British climbing and the grit stone and stuff, this like, it's relatively short cliffs. They've set up kind of these rules, so to speak, as a way to preserve the resource. On mm-hmm. um, these short climbs, if it was grid bolted or anything else, right. it would just lose its flair. And, sure. and I feel like, you know, in a lot of ways, those needles being smaller, mm-hmm. in that it maybe has a similar idea of like trying to protect this resource. And That's true, especially in the, uh, the Sylvan Lake side of the needles, mm-hmm. the east side of Harney Peak. Um, but predominantly right around Sylvan Lake. Mm-hmm. The, the locals take great pride in um, wanting that to remain as traditional as possible. Sure. And now they're, they're, they've allowed hooking, which in the needles you can hook anywhere. Right. So to me, it, it, really, there's no difference. You, you, if you're a person that likes to do new routes and it requires a bolt and you hang on a hook, I don't care how you put it in. You know right. what I mean? Because right. I've done a lot of hooking for climbing and not, or for free climbing and for aid, just to get through mm-hmm. a section. And so the hooking you do in the needles isn't nearly as hard as the hooking you do on a granite wall, for right. example. Right. So it, to me, it's like, oh, okay, but, you know, it's a, nothing wrong with it. Right, nothing right. Good with it, it just is. But um, on the other side of Harney Peak, or in areas that haven't been climbed in, you can kind of do whatever you want. Right, and right. it's really a great way to do it because it's essentially the same rock. The rock's a little finer on the Rushmore side, but there's just jillions of sport climbs over there that mm-hmm. are outstanding. Mm-hmm. And there are some in the needles, Sylvan Lake needles too, which are sport climbs because people could let go to drill. Right. I mean, it's like the Naked Edge used to be a sport climb, in my opinion, before all the pitons rusted out. Right. Or or the direct northwest face of the Bastille. Mm-hmm. Now there are all these little broken off pitons in where you could, you could have gotten RPs if they'd taken the pitons out before they rusted out. Right. And so that those climbs, I haven't done them in years, but um, they're scarier now than they used to be. Oh, right. Because <laughs> you know? parts yeah. of them were definitely right. sport climbs. Right. Tremendous, mm-hmm. no matter how you do them. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Like the Naked Edge, it's got to be one of the best routes on the planet. But anyway. Yeah, so, well, can we skip to that? Um, sure. You know, ending up in Boulder. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, what, what, what brought you to Boulder? I was living in Laramie. I'd gone to college there. Okay. And um, loved climbing at Vitebu. And it was a great place to base out of. But the winters are brutal there. And mm-hmm. it's the wind that kills you. And you look out your window and you think, oh, my God, it looks tremendous. And the air temperature could be... 45 degrees in this little nook. But you walk outside and the wind will knock you off your feet, literally sometimes, and the, the wind chills wicked. And then you go up a couple thousand feet to Vitebu and there are only like three climbs you can climb out of the wind. So, right. And I was thinking, well, I, I love it here, but maybe should move somewhere else. And so that winter I sent letters to everywhere that I thought would might be interesting to live for a while. Places in New Mexico, Texas, Oregon, back east even. And um, all I'd do is I'd write to the Chamber of Commerce and I would say, send me all the reasons why I should move to your town. <laughs> and it was kind of fun. It was like having a pen pal that Ashley wrote back because they would send me these packets with uh-huh. a newspaper, you know, right. median income, distance from schools, you know, all this interesting thing. And I was always looking at wind and weather, you know. Well, then it turned out I didn't have enough money to move there, so I could only move toward Boulder. Right. And I say toward 
because the rents were more than I'd ever made a month right. at that point. So I ended up living in Longmont for a while okay. and then eventually Boulder. But And Gary Neptune had said, you know, if you ever need a job, let me know. And so he, I ran into Gary and he said, oh yeah, well Jack Roberts is is leaving soon. He's I don't know what he was going to do, but he was going to leave. And so why don't you start work next Thursday if you can? Well, Jack never left, right. which was terrific because I love Jack. But, um, you know, I don't know if his climbing expedition fell through or what it was. But um, anyway, I went down there and worked for Gary, and it was just terrific. It was fun. Uh, not a stressful job no. whatsoever. <laughs> and just, well, you have a boss who understands uh, taking off to go sure. climbing. Yeah. And what I liked was there, there was a whole world of undisclosed undiscovered rock there mm -hmm. and you could go down just pick a canyon or a mountainside and go look and you could find these really cool crags cracks faces whatever you wanted but one interesting thing to me that happened there was an interesting thing in Vitabu more than friends for me was the RPs mm -hmm. those really changed the game for me because you could put RPs in the back of these cracks and we, friends were expensive so took quite a while to accumulate a meaningful number. But the RPs, oh my gosh, I love those. So I went to Boulder and there were all these, you know, maybe somewhere obscure, but wonderful, again, exploring to find stuff. And then sport climbing came along. And in Boulder, there were the spaces between the cracks, which could be terrific climbs, but there was, there were blank as far as protection. Mm -hmm. So it was really fun to start playing that game because you you know you could go to the old museum and find new beautiful paintings in between sure the, where the paintings are sure. you know. So uh, to me one didn't detract from the other if 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 but as Mark Sonnenfeld once told me you can't legislate uh, morality. Mm -hmm. And you can't legislate good taste. That's what he said you can't mm -hmm. legislate good taste. And it's true. So there are climbs that, in most people's opinion, now looking back, should exist or mm -hmm. have been done. And the others are like, meh, you know, whatever. Right. But some of those cool, I think, Christian's roots were cool roots. I mean, they were, almost all of them were just wonderful lines. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't have done them any other way. So, wow. And they were fun and exciting right. and different and hard, you know. So I loved stuff like that. Right. It was like a whole new world in this old, like I said, like in, in, mm -hmm. in the Louvre. You know, you look between the paintings and like, holy cow, look at that. Right. Wouldn't that be fun to try that? So you could, you know. Um, well, you seem like the kind of guy that would have stayed out of uh, any sort of controversial contention that, you know, I know what was going on in Boulder at that time in mm -hmm. terms of, of siding on one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But were you able to just kind of like play the middle guy? Kind of, yeah. yeah. Because I like to do both. Right. I'm, I was never a bold climber. Mm -hmm. Very rarely did I, I... I don't know that I ever sought out bold climbs. Sure. And, you know, free soloing got really popular in the press for a while. And I don't have the head for that. I did some, but um, never a hard climb that I hadn't done before. Sure. And, you know, I've fallen off... Of, when I was in really good shape... I've fallen off of really what then were easy climbs, like just because I was 
going along, do, 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 you know, and I turn around to talk to somebody and like not hold on or something. I mean, <laughs> a little, a little more than that, but that's essentially what happened. I fall off. It's not a good, they, not a good free soloing yeah, trade. They, they catch me, you know. Right. I mean, on the road. Yeah, of so course. that's why I'm not a free solo, and I don't right. need. It wasn't important for my sure. vanity to be competent at that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I wanted to be able to fall. Right. And climb again 20 seconds later or the sure. next day, you know. And I, when I was a kid, a good friend of mine and I, I'm digressing a little, we went to the Needles. There were these cool rocks that hadn't been climbed, major spires, kind of an out of the way place. And he and I were the first I knew to try to climb those. And then uh, on his graduation from high school night, he was killed in a car wreck. And so, an older friend and I decided we were going to climb these rocks and name them for our friend. And I went there and we, <clears throat> I went up and I had, I had a bolt in, the first bolt I ever placed on a climb. It was at the top of a, a ramp, you know, easy ramp, but put this little quarter inch bolt in. And then about 20 feet higher, I put in a little short baby angle and tied it off. And about two feet above that, I put a, one of those little knife blades that's that long. Sure. <clears throat> and I got up, and that was the last pro, and you had to go a long ways. And so I'm climbing up and down, up and down, up and down. Finally, I went so up, I couldn't get down. Even Wren's practice didn't help me there. So I just kept going up. And I got really close to the top, like a body length away from the top, <clears throat> and fell off. And I remember looking down, and my friend Bruce Franz was blame me and his eyes were just huge, you know. And it was quite a long fall and on the way down I barely skimmed that ramp so it just kind of erased me on the side, you know. I was a human scab for a while. And the angle pulled out and the little knife blade turned so, so that just the tip of a corner was what ended up holding me. And then if that had pulled, I'd have hit the ground because the bolt it's too low. It was way too low. Yeah. And it's a miracle, this, because it was just like a postage stamp, tip of a corner of a postage stamp. And it scared the hell out of me. And I couldn't lead for anything of difficulty for quite a while. It really scared me. But I still wanted to climb. So I just did easier climbs for a while. But we did get to the top. And when I wrote the Needles Guide, I put in the, the way this climb was summited is the best example of the worst style you can use in the needles. Because I just put in like eight bolts to get to the top, just Warren Harding to the top. And should have I done it? No, but I did. But, you know, it's since been free climbed. And it's a long time ago. Dennis Horning, right. super talented climber. That's somebody you should talk to. Dennis is cool. He's a, still climbing hard. Um, He's just a gift to the sport. He does new routes, explores. He's found more new areas than you could ever guess were in Wyoming. Just incredible. But uh, he came, came along and finished the climb. So that was cool. But that was a very transformative climb for me because I could have, you know, if I had weighed a pound more, I wouldn't be here. So that was scary. And another thing that taught me is we used to just belay with the rope around our waist mm -hmm. until then. And my friend Bruce Franz had a, he went to the hardware store and bought a big chain link. 
and used it like a, a belay plate. And I said, are you sure that's going to work? And Bruce, he's brilliant, like an, an engineer. He ended up being a civilian test pilot for the military. And, you know, he had these things sussed out. And this was the first time I'd seen that. And I take this monster fall and I said, are you okay? He said, I didn't even feel it. He also had a harness, right. so he was way ahead. He had the harness he made. He was way ahead of everything. And I was just tied into the road. Right, right. You know? So, you know, one wrap around your waist and take that monster fall and like, oh my God. So that scared me bad. And it was several years before I did a, another, what I would consider a hard climb. Mm. Which, I should tell you that since we're talking about a long fall, it was up here at a local climb. And I was doing a direct finish to one of Frank Dussel's routes. Frank did this really hard crux and then veered off to a bolt on another climb and just lowered off and called it a climb. Well, above it, there was this beautiful, slightly overhanging wall. Not the crux of the climb by any means, but worth climbing. So um, I bolted that. It's, it's a sport climb up at Fossil Hill. And so I go up, and Dave Dahl's belaying me, and I'm, no, it's Todd belaying me. And so, I'd never been on this upper part. I just wrapped down and said, all right, here's a pocket. We can clip here, 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 here. So, I got lost after the crux, which was pretty solid 513. And up there, and I don't want to fall, because I've gotten through this crux. And I just go up, and I, somehow I, I'm off to the side, and I realize, oh, crud, I'm on these funky Swiss cheese lip pockets. And I get to the top, and I'm so pumped, because I'm hanging on way harder than I have to. I don't get to the top. I traverse across to where I'm supposed to be, or else where I had planned to be. Giant Waco. And it's overhanging. I'm leaning back, and I'm trying to shake, trying to shake, trying to shake. Well, there were these two really pretty climber chicks at the base of the climb that were watching me climb, and Todd was chatting them up. And so, instead of standing at the base of the climb, and he knows I'm up there resting, he's gives me like a bunch of slack and he walks over and then the rope snags so he throws out some more slack and he goes over and then it gets stuck in a current bush so he throws out like another whole bunch of slack and he's over there talking to these girls and I reached up and clipped I climbed up another body length and quickly clipped the last bolt of the climb and above that it was I shouldn't even put that bolt in it was like three more feet to the anchor so stupid but anyway and I climbed back down to the Swiss cheese Waco and I'm shaking out and I didn't tell him I was going to start climbing because I didn't have to. And I leaned out just to look up before I started up and that whole Swiss cheese lip broke out. And I had a bolt clipped above my head, about six feet above my head. And I just started falling and falling and falling. <laughs> and the root's about 100 feet long. Right. So... Um, what he'd done, he's th he'd thrown out like 80 feet of rope so he could go talk to these girls. And I, I remember looking down to see if my rope came untied. Right. You, know, you had time to go through all of that. <laughs> and, of course, the good thing was, actually, he must have thrown out about 50 feet of rope because he was way out from the cliff. And all of a sudden, he was yanked away from the chicks, across the rubble, <laughs> through the current bush, around the block, and stopped when he hit the base of the climb. And I was about eight or nine feet above him, you know. What the hell? I pulled the rope and went home that day. Yeah. And I was like, gee, <laughs> me. A rope clipped above your head and you take a 
90 foot leader fall. You know, that just can't, on a sport climb, that can't happen. With your best bro. Yeah. So it was a couple days before I finished it. And that day was. <laughs> He's lucky you didn't punch him in the eye. Yeah, I know. That was 9 11. And so when we got home, we found out. Oh, wow. Know, the headline, I think, of the New York Times was, you know, the terrorists arrive on, on devil's wings. So I, I called it on devil's oh, wings. Wow. But really, it, it's used. The name used is whatever Frank called right. the first part, which right. is great, you know, because he did the business. Mm -hmm. you know, so and it's a good little route. So, but man, that was scary. Well, let me, yeah, let's get to that then too, because you know, there's nobody in the world that doesn't associate you with Todd Skinner mm -hmm. and Todd Skinner with you. You guys had a storied partnership of the ages, mm -hmm. really. And uh, you know, so how did you you guys end up hooking up and becoming this this sort of Duo well, again, I just got out of the Marine Corps, mm -hmm. and I went back to school in Laramie. A lot of the climbers that I climbed with then had either graduated or um, left school or moved or whatever. There were a few friends I had there. I knew Bob Scarpelli, and we'd go climbing a lot. But um, one day, I was traversing on the student union, not the student union, but the student cafeteria wall. There was kind of a hidden courtyard and it was just actually a fire escape for the basement of the student union, and they were supposed to have planted flowers down in there, but they didn't. There's this little 20-foot high block wall. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there was probably a 10-foot high one that was about 150 feet long, and I like to traverse back and forth just to, I suppose, get used to hanging on edges so that sure. I could climb flared cracks at Vitaboo. And uh, this kid shows up one day, and he has... Uh, Willen's harness. He has like three figure eight clanking on the harness. He has Moak chalkstone, and the beaners were 50s era. Moon, uh, what, what did they call those? Marwa carabiners. Really weird shaped things that he'd gotten from his uncle Courtney, who climbed in the early 50s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so he showed up to, to uh, traverse on the wall with all this. Yeah, all and this he had junk. on his blue Royal Robins boots. And I say they were like two sizes too big. They are probably about four sizes too big. But he came from a mountaineering background. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you fit your mountaineering boots with two pair of wool socks and a pair of silk socks as your base layer. And that's how he fit his Robin's boots. So he had a good inch in front of his toes before they came anywhere near the things. And he was pathetic, but he was so eager. <laughs> that I thought, wow, this is a great belay slave. So... You know, did you know? Immediately, you know, and the mistake I made was the first thing I said, you've got to get some new shoes. So he got a pair of EBs that were still too big, but, you know, way tighter right. than that. And immediately he got better and better and better. And he was eager and strong and um, bolder than I was. And so we immediately started going out climbing, and we'd pick these things, you know. He, you know, we were both students. He was actually a very good student. Like, there are a lot of climbs that he missed the first descent of that I said, let's go do that. Mm -hmm. He said, I can't, I can't, I've got a finance class or something. I said, I've got classes too, but let's go do the route, you know. <laughs> you can always go to school. Right. So I'd go, you know, and he'd go and get a good grade, you know, and still got the climb tons. So we both found we loved that exploration. And growing up, he was the same way. His uncle Courtney had gone to Antarctica for several winters in the 50s. 
he was there at the International Geolog Geographical Year, or whatever it was, and in 56. And then his dad climbed with Bill Long and Dick Long and others of the 50s, and they explored the Bella Coola Range in British Columbia and made lots of first ascents, and made the third ascent of Shiprock via New Route, and, you know, stuff like that. So Todd had this exploration bent. Mm -hmm. And so we, he liked doing new routes also. And also, we just hit it off. You know, when you have a friend that you don't even have to tell the whole joke that you're making up and they think it's funny and they mm -hmm. know the exact words. And uh, We thought a lot alike and we wanted a lot of the same things in climbing. And we didn't care which one got the lead first. Mm -hmm. We did, really. Right. But we were polite, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he started getting more and more. He, he was very clever. He was smarter than I was. He'd say, all right, well, you go first. And so I'd fight my way up this thing, putting in the RPs and the whatevers, and uh, fall off or something, get almost to the top. So then it'd be his turn. So all he had to do was clip on my way up. He was smart. <laughs> but in the early days, he, he was really quite naive about modern climbing techniques. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, of course learned fast because we went climbing all the time and he was so eager and so, he's so smart that uh, he didn't miss anything. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon he was telling me how to do these things. So it was great. And we, we both wanted to not be old men and look back and say, I wish I would have. Right. And there's millions of things I still say I wish I would have, but I didn't say it to everything. You can't right. do everything. Sure. But I'm so glad I made some wrong decisions that were right decisions. Mm -hmm. Like, oh God, I don't have the money to go on this trip, but I'm glad I did. Because mm -hmm. now, that's in the past. I, the, whatever debt I had is taken care of. I, just, you know, but I got those experiences. You know, I got to emigrate to America in a way. Um, I loved giving myself those opportunities, and he was psyched about that. We'd sit around, he had a dorm room, and he'd talk about a lot of the same things I did. You know, like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to go to Yosemite? And we'd look at these black and white photos in books, and like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have been John Solothay, or have been, name a historical climber, like, wow, wouldn't it have been neat to be there, be the first ones there? And then around that time we hit on the idea of, or not the idea, but we realized, gee, there are a lot of A climbs here that could be free climbed. Mm -hmm. And many of them had been already. You know, one cool climb we really wanted to do was boardwalk. People told us, geez, that's 511. So we went out one day and climbed it. And it was, wasn't harder than anything else we'd been doing. So that was quite a revelation. You know, and we had RPs, which weren't much use on that, but still, we had the gear, we had the motivation, we had the team that was important. And so we began trying to free a lot of these aid climbs too, like at Devil's Tower. Mm -hmm. And that was fun, you know, a whole new frontier. Wow, wasn't that great? And Todd would pitch his teepee in the summer there. We both looked back on that, and that's the worst time of the year to climb because it's so right, far. Right. You know, devil's lowest part of the state. You know, what were we thinking? But 
What a treasure. Dennis had been picking plums very cleverly there, for Dennis Horning, for a number of years. We better get there before there are any. Well, there's still things to do. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's still things to do. <laughs> we were anxious. To there's always that, I think, feeling every generation mm-hmm. feels like it's all been done. There's yeah. nothing left. And then the next generation looks back on you guys and goes, God, they were lucky. There was so much left to do. Yeah. Our, it's over for us. You know, I think yeah, that's probably happened. Yeah, and then, they find yeah, tons of happened stuff ten, to do. You know, yeah. for, for 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. It's all been climbed out, and then, oh, look, there's more new routes to do. So, And we'd look back, we'd look at these photos, and I remember sitting in his dorm room, and I brought in a, a mountain magazine. Somebody had climbed the Solid Bay, and we were looking at that, and then we got out some books that had Tom Frost photos in it of the Solid Bay. And we are looking at the headwall crack. Look at that. Wouldn't it be cool? Wow, but it's essentially 3,000 feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, it isn't quite that, but you're just thinking, holy cow, I wonder what that feels like. That, that crack looks like such and so. Right. We could climb that. Of course, you're looking at the central part of the crack, and you don't know what the rest of the route is. So that was where that idea came from first. Like, wow, wouldn't it be? We'd, we'd be out at Vitavu, and we'd be in some flare, and we'd look down and pretend we're on the headwall to ourselves. Right. Know, Holy cow, look at those treetops down there. <laughs> Instead of sagebrush tops. Right. <laughs> but that's kind of where that came from. And then Todd traveled a lot uh, after he got out of college. And uh, he went there and with, uh, I can't say his name now. Anyway, he and this, he called, he says, hey, we're going to go up on the solitaire. Some friends told us that, wow, if we can climb the stigma, we can certainly climb the solid thing, because they were thinking of the pin scrack, pin scar cracks. So I said, I can't. When I, oh, I said, yeah, I'd love to go. When are you going up? Tomorrow. <laughs> well, then have fun. I can't get there that fast. Right. So they went up, and it turned out to be a recon. And the, the move that shut them down immediately was after your in the base of the heart and you're climbing up mm-hmm. or the left side of the heart there's a hard move there I think there's a piton or a bolt there might have been the last one Robbins and his crew play, placed if it's a bolt and it's just a little boulder problem but it's a weird 511 move yeah yeah. yeah you totally. get above it and then it's still kind of hard right like, God, look at that rusty thing um, yeah it's and, really the end of that traversing part you yeah know, you go up start going up again mm-hmm. for the next kind of ledge corner system yeah and they got up there and it was late in the day. Right. Oh my God, what do we do? It's just weird. And one or the other just grabbed it and pulled through. It was a recon, you know. So I remember he warned me about that when he said, well, you get this lead. I mm-hmm. said, okay. And again, it, it's such an innocuous looking thing and it's just kind of tricky, you know. What the heck is this? I don't quite know if I want to commit to this. Then you do and it's okay, but... Um, yeah, but that was nothing compared to what you oh, guys yeah. were going to encounter. Yeah, but that's the point. Yeah, right. You know, like, holy cow, we couldn't right. do this. Right. And so um, then he went up another time and he called me and he said, hey, we're going again. And do you want to come? Out? Yeah. And again, we're going up tomorrow. Like, what <laughs> the hell? And it turned out almost the same. They were such poor aid climbers that it took them so long to get through. They were, you know when they could, free aid climbing, and then pulling through stuff. And 
We said they, they were so pathetically slow that they didn't really learn much more on that trip, but it was still kind of fun. So I told him, I said, doggone it, tell me when you want to go. He said, let's leave the 1st of May, next May. Mm -hmm. Okay, I said, great. I'm in. So off we went. He drove up from Waco or New Mexico or something. And his van blew up. And this his, is like 87, 88? Yeah, 88. Yeah. This was 88. Okay. And so he called his, he had AAA drag his vehicle farther than they agreed to in the contract. But he talked him into getting him to South Denver. And his brother came and got him and towed him to Boulder. And I jumped in my Volkswagen van, which hadn't run in months. And it wouldn't start, among other things. And we tinkered with it and got it running, but you couldn't start it with a starter. So I met some East German climbers, and they had this really strangely shaped carabiner. I traded them a bunch of stuff from them. They wanted American gear. And I didn't want their junky European gear, but I wanted them to have some good gear. So I learned to short the solenoid on the starter to make it go. I needed a new solenoid, but instead of buying one, took this weird carabiner and had this stick on it taped in such a way that I could just reach under there and Todd would turn the key and we'd spark it off we'd go. I still have that. It's got lots of burns on it. I don't use it for climbing. <laughs> but yeah, off we went. We got to Yosemite and oh God, it was a cool adventure. And we were worried because being we are competitive about these new routes. Sure. We wanted to we didn't want anybody else to know we were interested in it. And even though people knew Todd had been up on it. So was there, I mean, you guys, you know, this, to frame it, this is uh, before laying on the nose. No one had free climbed El Cap at Correct. this Correct. I think the, the West face. Well, the West face, right, game. right. Yeah. yeah. And um, were there other people, though? I mean, was this something that was, you know, on people's minds, or were you way well, ahead of the curve? No, I think other people had thought about it. Um, Suzuki... Hidetaka had been on it oh, with that right. in mind. That's right, actually. And um, the team we were most worried about, there were two teams we were worried about. One was Randy Levitt and Tony Yanero because they're super talented. They, you know, invented new kinds of climbing. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, they were, well, Yanero kind of temporarily retired, I think, at that time. He was doing something in Idaho, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, he's so gifted that it would, he could quit climbing for 90 years and still come back and be at the top. And Levitt is amazing, you know. But who we were really worried about was Wolfgang Gulick and Kurt Albert. Uh -huh. Because they, we knew they were interested in it. And then uh, Stefan Glovach came to try it. Right. That's right, because it's in his book. Yeah. Yeah. And he opened a... Uh, he found a really cool pitch that allowed us to get to the bottom of the hollow flake. The hollow flake. Yeah. And we called it Stefan's Stupid Traverse. <laughs> because it was actually brilliant, but it involved down climbing sure. and then going sideways. And you had to do this really desperate little short face climbing traverse. And that, that was quite a door he found mm -hmm. opened. And I remember. Uh, think in his book reading that he thought it would be a lot longer before 
people freed it, and that would take expedition tactics. Sure. Do, which it did. Right. We actually mounted a little expedition. Uh huh. But um. So, but we were still worried about Wolfgang Gulick and Kurt Albert, and I talked to. That's Wolfgang. a legitimate worry. Oh, you bet. <laughs> and they were experienced Yosemite sure. climbers. You know, they didn't have to learn how to climb the rock. You know, all that stuff. And so I talked to him not long after that, and he said, he said we had to choose which wall we wanted to do. We wanted to do the world's coolest big wall free climb. And we were going to either do the Solothay or the Trango Tower. And they chose to go do the Eternal Flame, I think they called it. Sure, right. And he was super complimentary. You know, Wolfgang was just a, just a wonderful, sweet, good-hearted, super talented person. And Kurt, too. But I thought that was a neat climb. And he says, so we went and did our wonderful climb, only to come back and find out that you did the best free climb in the world, which was a nice compliment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's true or not, but it was wonderful for him to say that, you know, which he was that kind of person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we were very clandestine about our um, plans. And when we got to Yosemite, we were, of course, friends knew we were coming, but we didn't want to leave a note on the thing on the bulletin board that said, hey, Paul and Todd are here to try to free the Solothay. I still have these notes, too. And it was this code we had. And it'd be like, um, it was like a Tom Waits lyric, you know, some strange lyric. And they'd find these things and they'd know, oh, we're here. Or when we'd come down from the wall, we'd have leave some weird cryptic note that didn't maybe didn't even mean anything, but at least they'd know mm -hmm. we were down and mm -hmm. we were going to go back up, you know, whenever. And that was just fun. It was fun having the trench coat and the fedora on and sneaking around. Well, I mean, other than worried that other people were going to do this route, having spent a bunch of time in Yosemite, there couldn't have. There must have been some people who oh, were, sure. you know, they angry. The outsiders were here, or maybe your tactics, or, or oh yeah, like there that, was. So. In fact, um, it was really fun. We'd be on the wall, and. Uh, John Sherman used to crack me up because he was there, and he would uh, drive up when he was done climbing for the day, and he'd park, you know, on the highway, and he'd be yelling up the the worst thing that I think we could possibly be in that time was hang dog. He'd be yelling up hang dog, hang dog, and we were up there laughing, and, um, <laughs> and you know we could have rat bolted the head wall, and it wouldn't be as big a sin as. Hang dogging. That's the way I felt about it. You mm -hmm. know? <laughs> He's down there yelling, hang dogging. Um, you know, he was serious. Right. It's like the Brits. They take the piss out of you, but it was. There's still, still a barb a in it. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a barb in it, but it, yeah, sure. And I appreciate yeah. that. You know. So this is 1988. Yeah, and I was okay. a venerable hang dog by then. I right. I've been doing that. It just makes sense to me. Right. And know? well, just to put it in perspective, <laughs> uh, you know, th this was an era when. Just hanging on the rope and trying to move over again was mm -hmm. considered, at least still in Yosemite, considered, you know, a cheat or yeah, whatever. So. Yeah. And you guys were what? It was something like thirty days. I like work, to say or? forty days and forty nights because right. it's biblical. You right. know, it gives it that. Yeah. Everybody, they may not realize that, but like, wow, yeah, that's like. But I could look it up, but it was something. Like yeah. That. I mean, yeah. you're up there a long time in different. different yeah, and we'd terms. come back yeah, down. Right. Right. And we. Uh, because both of us were just stinking broke. Mm -hmm. And to fund the final push, 
We'd been there like six weeks or something. I mean, not six weeks on the wall, but in the valley. And we were just out of money. So we took everything out of the van we could and sold it in a big yard sale. And sold the van or no, sold no, stuff? sold stuff. We right. had a finger, I had a right. fingerboard I sold and carabiners we weren't using or shoes, whatever. Mm-hmm. In fact, about a year ago, a guy found me on the internet said, I, you probably won't remember me, but I bet you remember that I bought your fingerboard in the yard sale you had to fund the final push on something. I said, oh, sure. That's great. And he said, would you like to buy it back? <laughs> it's, it's, been a cons- it's appreciated in yeah. value quite a bit, I I'll said, warn you. I said, no, thank you. Yeah, I, I, you can't believe how much whatever we sold it for, which probably wasn't very much. Right. But, um, and he used it for years. Right. You know, he has kids now and they hang on it. Right. But, um, I they said, don't wear know, out, really. Yeah, I yeah. said, thank you, but no, and you just can't believe how much that helped because we could buy food to go up on the wall. Because mm-hmm. we'd been caching it a little, but it was also kind of a rainy, snowy spring, and we'd get up there and the food would be gone because somebody would have eaten it, you know. And I was like, oh, dang. And I later met a guy, and this guy said, you know, oh, yeah, that was great. We didn't have to eat our food. I thought, I'm glad you could use it, you know. But... <laughs> So we'd get up there and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be there. But we had enough to, mm-hmm. you know, because we were also, we had Bill Hatcher right. and John Christie, this cool Scotsman that uh, came along and he wanted to climb Solithay. And we said, oh, gee, we got something right up your alley. So he led every pitch for Bill to take the photos. Oh, okay. And when, as soon as uh, we could, we'd urge them to go. And we we got close to the closer to the summit, and they had enough ropes to fix back down from the summit. They went to the top, and we kind of sent John home. But he was ready to do some real climbing anyway. Mm-hmm. He did the slowest ascent of the Solithay ever, and so he went down and climbed with other friends. And Bill could stay on the top, and then we only had one person to feed. I mean, some of those photos that Bill took have become like the iconic photos of climbing. I mean, mm-hmm. particularly, you know, the, the, the spire picture with the, oh, yeah, the tents yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that, that was all, I mean, today we're so used to like people redoing climbs to, mm-hmm. you know, get the ph- photography, but that was all in the mix mm-hmm. while you guys were up there working on this thing. Yeah. 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 And it was the kick. I mean, and people will say, why didn't you video that? Mm-hmm. Well, golly, in those days, the portable video cameras yeah, were, were that big. Monstrous, you know? Yeah, Man, we would have loved to have done mm-hmm. that. And, uh, Did this change much for you, freeing the Salate, in terms of, you know, personally, like the way you guys started approaching these expeditions or what could be done, or professionally? I mean, in a lot of ways, I think you guys, maybe Todd more so, are sort of seen as maybe the first professional climbers. Yeah, in know? a lot of ways. You know, yeah. or, or at least starting that sort of path especially and we were very opportunistic about right. it too I mean if the opportunity was there we wanted to climb mm-hmm. and uh, if that helped us have time which is our greatest gift as living beings sure. time we wanted to use that time to its fullest and if accepting some money for wearing a shoe mm-hmm. would help us to climb we wanted that, you know, rather than have to spend as much time actually working. Sure. Yeah. And um, it actually changed my opinion. I don't know how 
exactly how I thought of it, but I always admired Reinhold Messner. He said the same thing. You know, he was probably the most successful sponsored climber in the sure. world. And he said the same thing. Man, I, I just want to climb. I want the freedom to climb, and this is the most time-efficient way mm -hmm. to achieve my goals. Sure. And so many things, you know, there's... You kind of have to be bulletproof. And it doesn't mean you're not getting shot, but you don't want to bleed in public either. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> sure. You know? And so, you know, there were a lot of people that were very strenuously against a lot of things we did, from mm -hmm. techniques to uh, hang-dogging to... You know, it's funny how a lot of that is commonplace now. That's just the way you do certain climbs. Right. Well, that's you know. always the, the perspective you get sure. with time. It goes yeah. back to the, the guys that... Mm -hmm oftentimes broke the rules are the ones who achieved and then then it comes into play i mean erickson talks about that on the end of climb yeah you know mm -hmm. he you know the the sort of the great ascents are often done by i believe he called dubious, dubious means, means. Yes. yeah and it's very true mm -hmm. it's very true and i keep thinking of jim i i don't know him i've met mm -hmm. him like a half dozen times for like five ten minutes mm -hmm. and i always admired his ability and his uh he had very definite personal goals mm -hmm. and he stuck to them mm -hmm. and I did too but I didn't stick to them in other words I was willing to hang on gear the way right. Ren didn't want me to right to be able to eventually not hang on gear you know the, that game but um, I just it just was so logical to me after a while I just wrote wow I can climb a lot more and be satisfied with what I did see that's the key are you happy with your effort on whatever it is sure and Jim Erickson was very happy with you know trying as hard as he could being getting ready for it you know being ready and giving his best giving you know 150 percent and very often making it and very often not and then he'd go well darn now that one's you know and you never went back to it. Sure. Which was strange to me because I love to climb. Right. And I would want to go back to see if I could do that move or that section or that whatever. That seems like maybe one of these first big goals that you guys achieved together, you and Todd. But you went on to, I mean, a good 20 years of, <laughs> of expedition climbing. Your philosophy towards exploring, like, really blew up after that, it mm -hmm. seems like. And uh, can you... You know, what are the, like the highlights of these expedition years that when well, you guys the, were climbing so much together? The Salafay was a proof of concept mm -hmm. that, um, you know, some big walls obviously could go free. But mm -hmm. you know what El Cap is. It's the epitome of impossible. It looks impossible. It looks bigger than it is when you're on it. The ground is farther down than it is. It's just over the top in every way I can think of, especially as a climber. And that was, it proved to us that even things we thought at first glance couldn't be climbed, like the finish of the head wall, wow, maybe we can find a way to do that, you know? And that was very encouraging to us. And so we thought, well, gee, let's try some of these other things we've talked about. And the first one we talked about was Mount Hooker. And Wind Rivers, another Royal Robbins route. Mm -hmm. After a while, we decided Royal's going to get mad because we're freeing some of his aid routes, and we always picked one of his. But he picked the Grand Line. Sure. You know? Right, so, right, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you can't not look toward Royal to 
li- learn and guide your climbing career. Mm-hmm. I think people will be doing that in a hundred years if they're still climbing, I'm looking back on him. Um, so we went to do Mount Hooker, and then we were at a, maybe it was an Air American Alpine Club meeting, and Jim McCarthy comes to us, and he's just frantic, just telling us about proboscis. And I described it, he was rocking back and forth from toes to heel. He really was. And you guys, got it. we were on that for three days, and it was raining every day, and not a raindrop touched us. You know? And you've got to go up there. That is just so cool. Nobody's been there in a long time. And they really hadn't. You know, people... That memory of his, though, is really bad. Because <laughs> you can get rained on on that wall. Yes, you can. Yes, <laughs> anyway, you can. go ahead, sorry. <laughs> but... Uh, he was trying to make the point that right. it's steeper it's than deep. you think it yeah. is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he got all psyched, and Galen Rowell was there. Galen mm-hmm. had been there. He'd actually been to the base. He hiked over to it one day. Um, and so we thought, yeah, let's go this summer. And so off we went. And we really originally had planned to climb the original Robbins route. Mm-hmm. That's what we wanted to do. And then we got there, and Galen ran off to... You know, Galen with more energy than almost anybody. He goes off and climbs nine or ten mountains to take a photograph. And Todd and I just kept looking at that outside corner. And we, holy cow, look at that's the most unbroken arete I've ever seen. And we decided that we would rather try and fail on that than succeed on a regular route. So we didn't even start that. We immediately started up what became the Great Canadian Knife. And we started up where Kurt, uh, I'm embarrassed. Kurt Smith. Kurt Smith and Scott Cosgrove. Yeah, Cosgrove. Was yeah. there another guy too? Um, I'm embarrassed. Oh yeah, okay. Jeff Jackson. Yeah, they're friends of mine and I hear I'm, I'm getting senile is what the problem is. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Kurt Smith, Cosgrove and, and Jeff yeah, Jackson. Yep. Yeah, And th- they started in this little dihedral, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure. And I got, I got off route. I was leading at the top of it. And I didn't get off route. I was too chicken to go out to the left. So I went out of the top of the dihedral and got up there. And I said, we don't, we don't want to go this way. So I placed a bolt and back down. And um, then we figured out several different ways to get to the arete. So, um, but anyway, and Todd aided that pitch the first time. Well, we didn't go the smart way the first time. We mm-hmm. went from the top of that dihedral. He was hooking across that. Oh my God. It was the scariest hooking pitch I've ever not done. I had to watch it. <laughs> right. you know, and, oh my God. He says, there's this black knob, and he kept saying, if I can get to that, I'll be all right. And so he steps out of his hook and grabs it, and it's just like nothing, you know. And then he's committed to somehow keep. <laughs> oh my God. I thought, if he'd have fallen, he'd still be falling. You know, crazy. <laughs> It's not but, a good place to get yeah, hurt either. All we were wanting to do was get to the arrest sure. so that we could begin that. And then we can. We knew there was a 510 corner at the bottom, a little groove we could climb up and walk across this little rubble thing. Anyway, it was just a gas. And Galen was always bugging us, you know, when are you going to start free climbing, he'd yell. When are you going to start free climbing? You just wave, you know, what can you say? We're trying. Yeah. <laughs> and again... Um, we adapted to the, what we felt was the most efficient way to climb that route without going to the top and rappelling down the whole damn thing. Right. Because 
even though there were flakes and some cracks, it was a blank or red as far as protection goes. So we did a lot of hooking and climbing up cracks and, you know, just doing what we could. And Galen, he wrote about all the bolts we placed. And we really placed a lot fewer than he thought we did and reported on. Um, but he, he went to an American Alpine Club meeting and he talked about all these bolts we placed. And it was quite a few, but it wasn't, it wasn't one-third of what he said. Mm -hmm. I counted them. I, had them you know, I knew how many we placed. Um, but even so, if it had taken that many, that's what I would have wanted to put in. There was this... And then, of course, Galen, he didn't just take photos. He led some pitches, too. Okay. Up high, there was this off-width that was dead vertical, at least, and it curled like this. Oh, I remember the pictures of it. Oh, actually, yeah. yeah. And Galen said, well, he says, well, I'll lead that. I said, great. <laughs> That's terrific. <laughs> and so um, he led that in his, his woolen, or he had a fleece hat on. And he's up in it right as it's starting to curve, so it's getting so one half of his body couldn't jam right, off with right. And uh, at that point, the hat comes down over his eyes. And I'm watching him, and he's just starting to you know, play. I thought, oh my God, here comes a big fall, you know. And he wouldn't have gotten hurt if the cam would have held, but, you know, it's a little big fall. And uh, pretty soon he makes another... 120th of a move and gets his hat pushed back so he can see and climbs to the top and he gets to the top and he looks down and he says that wasn't nearly as hard as the 510 off widths I did back in the 60s <laughs> and I'm sure it wasn't you know <laughs> but it sure looked hard oh man I'm glad he led that one <laughs> he was fun to climb with man Too many friends. Right. Man. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, we're, we're actually been doing this quite a long time, but I, I do want to ask you about Todd's death because I think that I knew you guys' history and everybody was super shocked when that happened. And I think myself and, and probably anyone sensitive enough, you know, thought about his family, mm -hmm. but pretty quickly thought about you, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what, it, what it, it meant to you. You know, this was in 2006. At that time, what was you guys' relationship like? I mean, you guys oh, were like great. brothers. You know, we you lived know. a block apart okay. until just recently I'd moved mm -hmm. to Newcastle. Right. But um, he and I, when we were working on the dihedral, mm -hmm. he has a Celestron telescope, and we'd spend a rest day looking at that wall and picked out those roots. And his mom was very ill, and my mom had gotten suddenly sick and died. My dad was maybe not doing so well then. He's fine now. Mm -hmm. But, so I chose not to go on the Jesus Rail, whatever the right one was, the first one he did. Anyway. It was Jesus Built Your Hot Rod? Yeah. To, to then then denim kind of thing, one. yeah. yeah. Uh, denim. A wet denim daydream. Wet denim daydream, yeah. Uh, we looked at, we were enamored with the features in that mm -hmm. rock. It was like nothing else we'd seen in the valley. So I was more interested in the one he went back to later. But by then I, I felt I couldn't take the time to go. Mm -hmm. And so he went out, you know, climbing. And I get this call 
And Steve Bechtel said, he says, hi, Paul, this is Steve. I said, Steve, how in the hell are you? And then he told me. Mm -hmm. And it was, it didn't, it couldn't be real, you know. And then I heard about how it had happened. Well, speculation, no, we knew. and I knew how it happened, but it was wrong. Because I remember when we were working on the dihedral couple, you'd be, you'd be so tired, you know, up there. And get ready to wrap down the ropes. And Todd almost always went down first because he was fast. I didn't like to repel that fast. And I remember one day I was clear at the, like a pitch below the long ledge, the grand ledge. And I was clipped in and I put my gree gree on, didn't clip into my harness. And I unhooked and I was going to sit down and just let go. But just before I let go, I realized I was going down farther than I could, and I stopped and I looked. I said, oh man, you're too tired. Mm. And then stood up and clipped my carabiner in. I hadn't even clipped in. Holy cow. So I thought it was something like that. And then when I heard what had happened, it, um, you know, it's one of those beyond tragic things that happened, but both of us used a lot of gear that was tat, you know. Um, we'd seen it in use and how strong it was. And been to factories and watched it tested sure. know, and all this stuff. But then I couldn't not think about when we were first started climbing and Todd had that Willens harness and the leg loops were so worn out, they were, you know, the, the, the uprights holding the back to the waist part were gone. And I remember writing his dad. I think I called him. Todd was heading home for Christmas. I said, what are you giving Todd for Christmas? And he said, I don't know. I said, Bob, if you'd buy him a harness, I had described his harness. And you know, they were hunting guides, their family. And they always had these Randall knives, which were, they just kept like surgically sharp. And I said, Bob, you really got to get Todd a harness. You know, this is, I mean, it's beyond an accident waiting to happen. So Bob, Todd comes home and they're sitting around visiting and he says, hey, I guess you're using one of these climbing harnesses, these sit harnesses. Could I see one? Todd said, yeah, and he brought it in and Bob takes the Randall out and he just starts cutting it up, cut it like in six, you know, pieces. Todd's freaking out and his dad handed him like 50 bucks or whatever, which you could have bought two then, but he said, go get a new one. And somebody should have done that. You know, I had no idea that, and, but again, like in Mali or places like that, I'd look down and he'd have this sling hatch half hitched around the belay loop. And you know, it gets so constricted mm -hmm. and it keeps your belay loop from turning. So it's it's wearing in one spot right. mostly. And I'd say, you gotta fix that. And then replace the tether too. You've been using that for three years, you know. And you just have to, it's like pulling teeth. You know, That's fine. I said, I know it's fine, but you're, it's bugging me, you know. Well, had, like they say, he had a harness on order. Right. If he just spent another 50 bucks at the mountain shop. Right. You know. So it's been a heartbreaker. And I, I used to, I still do, wake up with this kind of post-traumatic shock of falling off the top of the solitaire. Because if you saw what ended up catching us. There's no way we should be here. 
It was a fluke that that happened, and it was a fluke that it we lived through it. And as a reminder, you you guys had belayed on like the typical boulder that mm-hmm. everybody belays on, yeah. or belayed on, because mm-hmm. it's gone now. Yeah. And the whole thing slipped. The whole thing went, and just as Todd was getting ready to step up onto the rim, I looked over. I'd already taken out some friends mm-hmm. I had. Mm-hmm. The only thing we had was a boulder, and I don't know why I'm a chicken. But I looked over there, and about 20 feet over was a little uh, three-quarter inch angle, or maybe a five-eighths, driven into a one-inch deep hole sideways. And I looked over, and I, and I took a rope and just clipped it into that piton. That I, if I'd have thought about it, I thought I could have yanked it out. Anyway, that piton's what saved us, and not only did it save us, but it held the rock as it went over the... It didn't stop it, this rock weighed tons. But I think it held just enough to tip it over so that the boulder falling could cut every rope it had to cut. And that's the one that caught us. Because the others would have dragged you down. Yeah. Or split you in half or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're both of us hanging off that over the rim of El Cab. So anyway, I think of that now. I still wake up with our solitaire fall occasionally. But I think about that, because I can only imagine it. And a good friend of ours, Gary Gareth, gave us a book by Joseph Campbell, right after the Solitaire. And on the front cover, there was one of his quotes, and it said, If you must fall, why not dive? And I always liked that. So, I always hope Todd dove. What else could you do but try to fly? Well, thanks for that. Let's. Um, we've been going at this for about an hour and a half, so. Um, Seems like about ten minutes. Does it? It's fun talking to you. Yeah. Well, let me close out with just ask you about. Um, uh, I wanted to actually ask you about. I think your son's been climbing pretty hard lately. Mm-hmm. I have two sons. Yeah, you have two. Yeah, Karn's the oldest. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't like heights. He doesn't like to be off the ground. Mm-hmm. And he's not climbing anymore. But he got into got to be a pretty good boulderer. And I think he still enjoys it. But now he loves, when he comes out to visit, we love to ramble through the needles looking mm-hmm. for things. Mm-hmm. He loves the exploration more. But he loves to boulder. Um, and he got quite good. James... Karn's 35, James is 15, he's just coming off a Knowles course in mm-hmm. just like two days. Wonderful uh, kid, and he loves to climb, he loves to longboard, um, and I'll betcha after he comes off his class, he's going to, oh, he's into fly fishing now. All things I really love, I think longboarding is especially compelling because you do these big graceful swooping turns, the kind I would like. I was never a jump off the cornice mogul skier. I love the long, languid turns, and that seems to me what longboarding would be. But he likes to climb, and he's a really good climber. And with Karn, I, I kind of little-leaked him, you know, pushed him too hard, I think. Mm. Even though I, as I was doing that, I was saying, I'll never be one of those parents that pushes their kids, and I think I did. So James, I don't care if he climbs up five feet and wants to come down, or wants to climb up the rope. I don't care, just so he's having fun and he's safe. 
you know. But I worry about him more than I did with Karn climbing or getting hurt because at the time I was so into it. I mm -hmm. was invincible. I knew Karn was going to be fine. I was going to take care of him. Catch him if he fell. But now I'm a, uh, in my decrepitude, as Karn would say, and I'm more aware of well, maybe I'm a better parent, even though I'm not with James all the time, you know. But I worry about him. I worry about Karin, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not worried about it, because he's not really climbing now. He only climbs when he comes out to visit. So, they're different kids, which is really neat. Kids. James is 34. Karin's 35. He's not a kid. But uh, he's very artistic, Karin is. And he's a wonderful painter, and He's especially a good caricaturist. His sketchbooks I love. And he spent a lot of time at Waco. Even when I wasn't there, he'd go down and stay with Todd and Milty and those guys. And he drew these wonderful caricatures, just taking the piss out of people. Now, mine were the most brutal, but I loved them. And he'd draw these caricatures of Gibet and Ed Langer. And he could see their weaknesses and bring that out in this cartoon that it made everybody laugh. You, know, you look at him now, you laugh. And Ed Langer had a magazine at the time and he wanted to hire Karn to do these caricatures of famous climbers. And I wish he'd done it, but he wouldn't impugn his art. All right. you know, it's, I have to remain pure. I can't do anything for commercial reasons but because I'll start wanting to do them for commercial reasons and that's tainting my spirit. It sounds familiar. Yeah. I get it, you know. Um, but on the other hand, I'm the dad, so I want him to be well-fed and warm, you know. <laughs> and he is more pure. Karn and I, or Todd and I love to talk to Karn. When he'd come, we'd grill him. Discussing. It wasn't grilling, really, but it kind of was. And he was more perfectly driven and focused than both of us put together. He, you know, they say if you want, you raise your kids the way you want them to be. And at that time, I was so driven about climbing, and Todd was too. And then as we got older, and he's an adult, and we'd talk to him. Uh, he had a more philosophically pure, brilliant philosophy than we did. And we'd try to go around corners and set traps for him. And he's so bright and solid in what he wants to do, he'd already contemplated all that. Mm -hmm. So it was refreshing to know that he is truly doing what he wants. And James being 15 is still exploring what he wants. And so I'll be curious to see him, to re-meet him when mm -hmm. he comes out of the mountains. I think that'll be cool, you know. So I can't wait to see that kid again and see how he reacted to 30 days in the wilderness, you know. Well, Paul, this has been awesome. We've been at it for a while, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate you sitting down um, oh, you're and being so open about, uh, about your career and about your friendship with Todd mm -hmm. and about your kids now, too. So. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be thinking of it driving today. Dang, I wish I hadn't said that. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, there's always the editing process. But. <laughs> well, no, I, um, I've enjoyed it. Great. Fun talking to you. If you're ever in the Black Hills. Sounds like I gotta go. You really do. You know, 
most people I say you got to go to the needles if you're a climber once because mm-hmm. you know, most people like to climb Devil's Tower uh, it's such an iconic thing but the Devil's Tower is unique for what it is most pure thin cracks I've ever seen a good collection of them but the needles is fairy land beautiful you know mossy corridors mountain goats it's like Patagonia that's diminutive you know without the weather just these beautiful pinnacles sticking up it's the kind of place where you don't have to say why do you climb you look at them and even a farmer from Iowa can say wow I get it now right you know so that's cool it's worth going alright yeah I'll look you up you should yeah thanks again you bet Okay, thanks for listening. A couple of really special moments in there. I want to thank Paul again for uh, giving me so much of his time, being so open about his uh, life as a climber and his relationship with Todd. Remember, if you want more information about the EnormaCast, you can go over to EnormaCast.com. Over there, you can get in touch with me. You can buy T-shirts. We got new T-shirts, new colors anyway similar design but some new colors and uh, you can email me for stickers just send me an address for stickers anyway when you're over there click on the help out tab figure out ways to uh, help keep this thing going and remember those festivals Forks Fest September 21st Idaho Mountain Festival September 26th and before during and after those festivals don't forget to check your knot
and I'll turn around. And I'll move my fingers up and down, up and down. It's okay, amigo. Just let me go. Riding here on the rodeo. Love is the love for me.